Lord, we come now to these ancient words with anticipation. We come knowing that these ancient words have not lost in the slightest the edge of truth and clarity. We thank you for your preservation of these words, for the uh, Holy Spirit that is even now uh, in our midst, in us, opening our eyes to, to show us your glory, to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We pray, Lord, that you would illumine our eyes to see you, to worship you more fully, to align our lives more rightly to, to your word, that we could reflect more consistently who you are to a world that is lost and dark. Lord, we give praise for a Savior who is like no other, uh, a, a matchless Savior, a, a, a Savior filled with love and, and truth. And, and I pray, Lord, as we study these events today, that we would be changed. Meet us here, we pray, in our need with all your sufficiency. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Worthy and sovereign. Well, let's just jump in and we'll take these verses little by little. Um, what I did is I put together two uh, different occurrences, uh, two different events that took place that Luke brings us. And I want to try to present both of them because I think they really dovetail together well uh, with where we're, where we're at in this gospel. And so let's just start verses 1 through 5. Now, in your sermon notes, uh, don't get confused. This may be a little confusing, but just track along with me here. We're going to begin with unable but worthy, but worthy. But note this, I'm putting the, uh, the quotes over worthy. It's important that we see those quotes. Unable but, quote unquote, worthy, okay? Let's dive in and see how this unfolds. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings, remember we're on the Sermon on the Plain, in the hearing of all the people, he then entered Capernaum. Okay, so we can kind of picture where that, that move is. We're from the Mount of Arbel on the plain, now moving back over to Jesus' home base for his Galilean ministry. We're back in familiar town of, of Capernaum. It says a, a, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, and who was highly valued by him, by the centurion. Okay, so little context here. Always want to ask when you read a passage, where am I? Where is this taking place? Well, here's a drone shot of Capernaum, and uh, I'll give you a little reference point. Um, Mount Arbel is right there. You see way over on the top, and the Sermon on the Plain, I'm guessing, happens somewhere right down in here at the base of Arbel, where Jesus prayed all night, called his 12, came down, and then gave the Sermon on the Plain. Now, in reference to that, if we were to go over here on the picture, the Sermon on the Mount took place up on the hill behind Capernaum. But now we're back to Capernaum in this area right here. And here is the synagogue, just to remind us uh, where we've been earlier. This is the synagogue in Capernaum. It's called the, the White Synagogue. And uh, we're going to look more closely at this as we go because the story takes us to, to look at that again. So we meet a Roman centurion. We don't know his name. In fact, we're not told a lot about this man uh, as far as his past goes. 
uh, but we have a lot to learn about this man. One thing we've got to ask is, what kind of pedigree is required to be a centurion in the Roman army at this time? Well, you could say this. This man was no pushover. He was a man among men. He had proven himself in battle. He had to be a, a man of courage, strength, endurance. He had to be a violent man to be a, a successful uh, leader in the Roman army. But more than that, okay, so not less than that, more than that, he had to have additionally a sense of how to lead other men. He wasn't just the brute force that would go pound doors in. He was the man who would command other men to pound the door in. He also had to have a sense of diplomacy. He was stationed in Capernaum to keep the peace, to bring uh, the decrees of Rome into the area in the context of Capernaum among the people. And the goal was not to incite violence, but to put violence down, keep the peace. And uh, so he had to be a, a diplomat, a leader. He had to be one who was respected by the men that he would lead. Now a centurion, we kind of see this as, as a century, as 100 years, roughly 100 soldiers is about what his command would be, you know, give or take a few. And that is where he is now stationed. So here's this man, a man of great renown, a man of great strength, a man proven, tested, a leader, a decisive man. And this is the centurion who has a need, okay? It says that he had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, and this servant was highly valued by the centurion. And that's an interesting thing. We, we learn a little more about this man just even in those words. Slavery in this day was a reality. Uh, the Rome, they treated their slaves um, in terrible ways. It was, they, were, they were simply uh, like, like tools in a shed. A slave was useful so long as he could work and do the things that were commanded of him. And as soon as he was not useful, he would be disposed of, gotten rid of. It's horrible. And so here we find something very unique. This centurion had a, a, a servant who was assigned to him and had been serving with him, maybe gone through battles alongside him. They had developed and fostered a relationship of care for one another. And even though this servant was sick and near death, Matthew actually builds it out for us. He, it says he was lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. If you're a Roman centurion, a common, just ordinary Roman centurion, at that point, you say of your servant, in this time, useless. Be rid of him. He's gone. Send me another one. He, he would have been replaced without a batting an eye. But this man begins to reveal he's not just your typical centurion. This is, there's something else happening in this man. He has regard for a servant who is near death. You, you begin to wonder, he's, he's wanting to help the servant. He's unable to help the servant. Think of what he would have done already. He probably would have sought out all the doctors he could find. They had no answer. 
He had money, we, we learn in a few verses, but, but that was no good. So he was unable to change the situation for his servant. And it was dire. It was near death. Let's see what he does next. He's unable to help him. And so now he goes and he, he does this. The centurion heard about Jesus and he sent to him the elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Okay, now this is completely not expected. First of all, why would the elders of the Jews give this guy time of day? In their mind, he's the enemy, right? Maybe not. Maybe there's more happening here. Maybe this man is a man of substance beyond what we would expect. Now, just pause here a second and rewind the tape to Luke chapter 6. What has Jesus been describing of kingdom reality? It's not what you would expect in the world. It is those who are the the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed who need Jesus. you, You look at this guy and you're like, well, he doesn't fit any of those. Well, maybe he does. Maybe he does. He goes to Jesus. Now, Jesus' reputation would have been clear and established the many miracles that he performed in Capernaum alone is uh, just renowned but the fact of the matter is is just in Luke 6 he did one of those healing explosions he healed everybody in the multitudes all they had to do was just come and and touch Jesus on the shoulder healed 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 this Roman centurion places his hope on Christ nothing else is going to work. So he goes to the elders, and they go on his behalf to Jesus. It's an amazing decision, really kind of an amazing display of this centurion's need that he would ask the elders of the Jews to go on his behalf. Now, how does this go? It says, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly, saying, He, that is the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Oh, okay. Now, there is a relationship here. There is a connection. I think in this verse, we begin to understand this Roman centurion was unbelievably unique. This man might in fact have been a a Jewish proselyte. Now, he might not have been able to carry his duty and openly um, declare himself loyal to uh, the Jewish faith, but at least in the sense of his support for encouragement of and cooperation to help and assist, he built their synagogue. It's pretty amazing. He's worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. I think what we have here is a a, a description of of a noble man. This is a noble centurion. He has regard for God's people. He's not just an occupying force. He's there to bless them, to help them, to, to even encourage them by building them out of his own pocket a place of worship. Okay, so this will blow your mind. What I want you to see here is 
the actual stones that this man purchased and oversaw the construction of. It's not the white rocks that you see in this picture. You see, this is what's there now. We walked all around uh, in, in this area and got pictures up in here. I think Gracie was hiding over here in the shade because it was really warm that day. Remember that? Okay, but just under these stones, under these stones, is this layer of, of basalt rock. And it is still intact to this day, built by this man. You can see it with your own eyes. These rocks right here, laid, purchased by this Roman centurion. And above all of that, certainly in Jesus' day, would have been the, the synagogue uh, that Jesus taught in and uh, did a lot of work in. It was all destroyed years later and uh, flattened, but the, the foundation was, was in, intact. It's really cool. They say this man is worthy for you to do this for him, Jesus. He's worthy. Now, when we say that word, what do we mean? What are some synonyms of worthy? Well, he's deserving. He, he deserves that, that you should do. He's meritorious of this miracle, Jesus. He's a good man. If you knew him like we knew him, you would, you would do this for him without any hesitation. There's two things that are operating here. We need to understand, yes, this man has displayed some kingdom values. He has loved what may have been considered his enemies. He has given to them out of his own pocket, built for them a place of worship. He's displayed nobility in kingdom kind of ways. But at the same time, you have to ask the question, does that mean he is meritorious? Worthy, deserving of this work of divine healing? I think this is where the elders of the synagogue totally miss the heart of this centurion. They miss it. This is religion, friends. This is not kingdom. This is, I will do good things and then you owe me. If I am this way or I don't do these things and I obey this list and I do this, then, then all of a sudden God, it pretty much, I mean, I deserve it. That's not how the Lord rolls. That's not how this works. That's not biblical. It is one of the greatest mistakes of Judaism. And it echoes throughout the world, even today, in all kinds of religious activity. Lord, we will do this for you. We will do this for you. We will roll beads. We will climb upstairs on our knees. We will, we will hurt our bodies. We will do good deeds all for the goal of being recipients of what we believe is deserved. Grace from you. Well, is this the message that the centurion wanted to be carried? Is, are those the words? I don't think so. In fact, we're going to see how it unfolds. I changed it now to unable and unworthy. We see a, a radical change in tone here 
in verse 6. Let's read this. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house where this servant was, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, now, now don't miss this, the, the friends come to speak for him directly. So they're, they're carrying his actual words this time. Lord, whoa, right there. That's a big word, a significant word. The centurion refers to Jesus as Lord. And then what does he say? Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word. Let's just stop and, and consider this. This centurion, it, it, maybe he heard back what the Jews had passed along to Jesus in, 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 in calling Jesus to come and heal. Maybe he heard what they had said about him being worthy of this. It could be. I don't know. But in any case, he wanted to set the record straight. I am not worthy. Please, don't come into my house. In fact, I am not even coming into your presence because I'm not worthy. I don't count myself of, of a position to, to even come before you with this request. And so I'm sending my friends on, on my behalf with a, a request. Think of all of the reasons this man could give to respond differently. His personality, he's a take charge kind of guy. He gets it done. He leads. He directs. He's a man of action. You need to get something done? Go straight to Jesus and deal with it. He has a position, right? This position that he holds has a certain admiration. What's it going to look like if he refers to himself as unworthy to go before a Jewish commoner? Don't forget, this man is a man of incredible wealth. He, he built the synagogue, right? He, he has wealth and renown. He has this prestige that he's built. He is loved by the people in his community. What are they going to say if they hear him refer to himself as unworthy to stand before Jesus or to have Jesus in his home, which would have been quite a place? What it does is it points out an amazing contrast of what you would expect from the world, and what a man, I believe, with kingdom eyes sees of himself. He goes on and he says to Jesus, say the word, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. What does this mean? Is he, is he saying in one minute, Lord, I'm not worthy to come before you, and in another minute, well, I, I do deserve this. No, no, no. He's saying, because I'm not worthy, because I can't even come into your presence, here's what, here's what I believe you can do. You are worthy. Say the word. Just say the word. He says, I'm a man of authority. I, I know what it's like to have 
some degree of authority, but you far more than me. You, you can say the word. You don't have to be in my home. You don't have to even touch me. You could just speak the word and he'll be healed. I am not able, nor am I worthy, but you are both able and worthy. Say the word, Jesus. That, my friends, is incredible faith. It is a humble faith. It is the echo of Luke chapter 6. This is what Jesus is talking about. Who is it who comes to Jesus? It's the poor. Those who are poor in spirit, meek and humble, lowly. Those who come and say, I'm not worthy. Not worthy. It's the prisoner. Who, those who are unable to change their situations. They are in change. They need redemption, salvation, release. The blind. Those who are quick to acknowledge. I cannot see. Open my eyes. I need you, Jesus, to meet me in my deficiency in my unworthiness, and the oppressed. Hmm. I believe this is evidence of eyes opened by the Lord. I believe that this man is a believer. I think he has uh, been around the Jewish faith enough to discern and anticipate the arrival of the Messiah, and I think then someone came and shared with him about Jesus. And he calls him Lord. And he looks to him with this incredible, humble confidence and faith. So Jesus, who is in fact able and worthy, is amazed at this. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at the centurion. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had, sent, uh, had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's awesome. Jesus delighted in his display of humble faith. Why did Luke put this event right after the sermon of Jesus in Luke chapter 6? I think it's the display of what he's talking about. And from a Gentile, this, this from an unlikely person. This is a, a glimpse of future reach of kingdom expansion. This centurion placed his faith in Christ. Humbly, not demanding, not, not, not saying I am deserving, not you owe me, but you can. You can do it. And I'm not worthy. What a display. Humble confidence in Christ is the only way to come to Christ. Friends, today, where we sit here, the call is come. But friends, we don't come with, with hands filled with all of the things that we think merit our salvation. We don't come saying, Lord, Here's the thing. I'm a pretty good person. Sure, I've done a few bad things. Let me build my, my stack of reasons for why I deserve to be called your child. I, why I deserve eternal life. 
I'm going to build these things up. And oh, there's one more thing. Here, let me set this over here. It's nothing. It's nothing. Paul said, everything that I used to treasure and value so much, I count as worthless. Christ alone saves. And we come humbly, empty-handed. Just like this man. Now we go to a second account here as we move through this chapter. And we're going to change scenes, okay? So we finished that piece and now we're going to move to the next. But Luke sees this handoff and he wants to to move us into this. And what I want to do before we read these verses is just bring you into an experience that I think the Lord gave me um, that was surprising to me. Just over a year ago, as we were moving through the, the series in Ruth, together. We, we preached through the, the, the weeks of Ruth. I was preparing for this Luke series, and I was in chapter 7 it, as we were moving through that series in Ruth. And I saw this thing happen in this part of Luke 7 that blew my mind. Jesus is displaying a fulfillment of the storyline of Ruth in this account. And so just watch for themes and connection points of the story of Ruth, Naomi, and, uh, and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, that, that jump to life in this interaction as we read it. The second thing that I want you to see is the, uh, the connection between Elijah raising the widow's son up in Tyre. Jesus referred to this in his sermon there at Nazareth, right before they tried to throw him off the cliff. Remember he said there were a lot of widows in Israel But Elijah was sent to the the Gentile widow up north. They were enraged at this. So Luke has this raising of a widow's son already in our our ears. It's, It's fresh in our minds. And then this happens. There's also a story of Elijah right in this area where Jesus is going, uh, raising uh, another widow's son. And so it's just, it's awesome. There's the, the Old Testament comes alive in spectacular ways and ordained ways as Jesus shows himself to be the prophet of all prophets. The kinsman redeemer that every kinsman redeemer pointed to. The better Boaz, the greater Elijah is Jesus. Okay, so let's see these verses unfold. Soon after, it says, he went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Okay, so let me just show you where we're at now. We've moved south, and uh, we came from Capernaum down here um, all the way down to this town called Nain right here. Now, here's what's amazing about this is this is Jesus' backyard, okay, Jesus grew up in Nazareth right here. And just a stone's throw across this really uh, beautiful valley filled with uh, farmland is this town called Nain, right on the the slope of Mount Moray. And uh, just over here is Mount Tabar. So I think I have a picture that I want to show you that we took when we were there. Yeah, so we're looking across the farmland here, and this is uh, the mountain at, at the base of which is this little town called Nain. Uh, Jesus would have been 
all over these hills, exploring and, uh, and journeying as he grew up there in Nazareth. So this is familiar territory as he comes into this city. Now let's continue. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. We learn a lot right here about the situation. Jesus comes in. Now, he's got his 12 with him. And behind those are the multitudes. Lots of people following. So there's a, a, a big mass of humanity everywhere Jesus goes. They're following him. And so that crowd is coming to the city gate, this direction. Coming out of the city gate at the same time is another crowd. It's a funeral procession. And leading the way is a woman. And it says that she has lost her only son. So we have the death of, death of a child, the death of the only son of this woman, and this woman is a widow. Just to feel this, her anguish is real. The devastating loss that this is, it's is hard to even conceive of in this day. We felt this in Ruth, didn't we? Remember Naomi? Her husband died, and then both of her sons died. The connection to inheritance, the connection to the name, the connection even to the land itself is all through the father and then and down through the sons. If you don't have those, you're depending on others to survive. Basically, you become a beggar. Your future name is erased. This woman's anguish is real. It is a devastating loss. Here's the other thing that struck me. I think Jesus knows that prophecy. I think He knows exactly what that means. And the days are coming where His mother, who has no husband, the widow, will lose her firstborn son. Now, the Savior's compassion. This is a spectacular verse. When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. And He said to her, Do not weep. He saw her. He felt compassion for her. And He spoke words of comfort. Do not weep. This word, I remember my dad standing here in 2010 preaching a sermon about the compassion of Christ. I'll never forget that, that day. That was a significant day of, of, of proclamation of what this heartfelt compassion looks like. Listen to the, uh, the, the word that's used here. It's splachnizomai. Uh, okay, I'm going to say it one more time. Splachnizomai. Now let's give it a try. Ready? On three. One, two, three. Yes. You know Greek? Means to experience deep inward compassion. This, 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 this will blow your mind. As I read commentators, I was struck by this, this insight. Jesus is unshackled by any of the restraints of a fallen, sinful nature. Therefore, in moments like this, exchanges like this, he is totally free 
to enter in fully and feel the hurt of another. There's no concern of what people may say. There's no concern of pride or holding back. When he feels compassion for her, it describes uh, almost a, a stirring of his inward parts. And someone even said it was as if the air went out of his lungs. Like he had almost been punched in pain to share with her in that loss. Remember when Lazarus died? Jesus is sovereign. He knows what he's going to do. It's all ordained. It's part of the plan. But he still wept. What's he, didn't, he didn't whimper. He wept. Feeling the weight of loss, the curse of sin, the, the devastation of death. Just a, oh. His heart goes out. And he says, do not cry. Now, this is not corrective. This is comfort. God, God through, through Christ here, as he speaks, he's, he's, he's bringing words of comfort. He's not saying, hey, you shouldn't be crying. There, there's no time for tears. He's saying, it's going to be okay. Just Watch, right? Don't cry. Now, the miraculous triumph. Look how this unfolds. Then Jesus came and, and he, he touched the beer, or the, it's basically like a stretcher, an old school stretcher. And the bearers who were carrying this dead young man, they stopped. They stood, so he stopped the procession. He reached out with his hand. So the, the mother is grieving here. He comes and he stops. And I imagine that at that point, all of the people behind Jesus, we have two crowds that are meeting. There's a lot of people at this place, this intersection of crowds. A lot of the people would have had this just hush go over them. That's Jesus. What's he going to do? I don't know. Right? We, I mean, we've seen him heal. But that dude's dead. Right? I mean, don't you, don't you think you would have been saying that? Well, he can heal, but can he overcome death? Is he able to do even that? This is a massive moment in the ministry of Christ. The crowds stop. All the, the silence comes in. And then Jesus speaks. He speaks. And he said to the young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they, they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. There's a lot happening in these words, this exchange. He speaks. He, this time, all he does is speak. He doesn't reach his hand out. 
He, you know, a lot of the miracle interactions that he's displayed before, they're, they're physical uh, interacting. He's, he has his hand on the stretcher, and then he just says words. He speaks to a dead man, and the dead man obeys. And he sits up. Now, remember this. this. This man at this point is prepared for burial. He is wrapped head to toe in linens. He, he, he is laying on a stretcher, raised up above the crowd. People can see him. And so Jesus says, arise, and he sits up, okay? He's bound. He sits up like this. And it says he began to speak because that's all he could do, right? And if you're mom, the first thing you do is like, unwrap his head. So the linens begin to unwrap, and the light begins to come in. His eyes are seen daytime. He's alive. Here's the other thing we know. Jesus doesn't do half-hearted work. This man is not simply alive. He is completely healed. 100%. He's not lagging or lethargic. He's ready to go. Celebration ensues. The crowds have witnessed the raising of a dead man. And then these words, these are the exact words that are described of Elijah when he gives Uh, the widow's son back to her. See this? Jesus gave him to his mother. Quote from Elijah. And they see the connection. A great prophet has arisen. One even greater than Elijah is here. Wow. That's Jesus. Hmm. Even more than a prophet. This is a display, my friends, of absolute sovereignty. Our greatest enemy is what? Death. Who do you know who beats death? Aside from Jesus. Who do you know? The richest man dies. The most renowned world leader with all of the medical professions, they die. And here we have a Savior who speaks and dead people sit up in life. Absolute sovereignty and victory over death. Death was arrested that day with words. With words. So our response this morning Let's put these two things together. I'd ask this question, how do you see yourself today? How do you see yourself? What what is your view of yourself? It is the grace of God that opens our eyes to see things as they are. As they are. This world is blinding and we, my friends, love it. Left to ourselves, we love to be deceived. I'm a pretty good person. I feel pretty good about myself. Compared to what? Well, I guess I'm comparing to other people. Is that the standard God uses? No. Here is the only real, accurate, biblical kingdom way to view yourself. It's this. Unable and unworthy. 
until we really can appreciate those two categories, we will not see Jesus as that impressive of a Savior. We are unable to solve our sin problem. We are blind to the light and the glory of Christ. We are held captive by the enemy. We are hopelessly lost, and we run to the fires of hell with all our might. Unless Jesus save us, we are doomed. And we are unworthy. We are unworthy to stand in His presence because we have sin-stained hands. That we would be consumed in an instant by His right, just wrath. So we, my friends, apart from the, the, the gift of Jesus Christ, we are unable and unworthy, and that is the reality of our day. We must see ourselves this way, the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the oppressed. That's what Jesus has just preached in Luke chapter 6. Then we come. We come. We come to the one who is able. We come to the one who is worthy and we hear his words. Listen to these words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you for these two accounts that come together to show us our desperate need our inability, our unworthiness, and to meet us in that place with the hope of your absolute sovereignty. You are able to save to the utmost all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. We give praise to you for this good news, this, this gospel, these truths of, of radical transformation. We thank you that you would show your grace to uh, the likes of us, Gentiles by and large, that we could be included in this lavish grace. We are unworthy of this, O oh Lord. We thank you for the faith of a broken, contrite, humble Roman centurion who looked to you in faith. And Lord, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your heart, for those who hurt. And I pray for all who are here today who are sin sick and tired of the struggle, slogging through the trenches of darkness and death. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes, speak life today, turn our gaze to Jesus Christ. Bring forgiveness and hope in Him alone. Lord, may we take these, these verses and, and hear the call. In our day, there is only one Savior. There is no hope apart from Him. And He is able. And He is worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.